You guys did good, braving the snow. Let's pray. Heavenly, gracious, loving Father, we come to You once again to drink of Your living Word, God, and we pray that our hearts may be found in Your Word and that our sin might be exposed and that we might come to Your Son and seek forgiveness and forgiveness through Him alone, God. Where else are we going to go, Father? You have the words of eternal life, God. And so it is to You and to Your Word that we turn. It is to You that we turn to find ourselves, God. We pray that as these truths weigh heavy upon us, that we would find our joy and our delight in Your Son, and that we would see Him high and lifted up, and that Your Son would be worshipped, and that Your Son will be exalted in this time. Amen. Amen. I just want to say thank you, first of all, to many of you who came over to our house and nursed Rachel and took care of her while she was taking care of our kids while they were sick. Apparently it was fairly cold here for some time as well. I heard while I was out gallivanting through some other country. And I had an amazing time in Israel, but it's one of the almost frustrating things when you come back. You see all these amazing sights and all these beautiful things, and then you come back and you you try to explain them, or you have a picture of it, you know, and and it just doesn't do do it justice. So you're, you're going through the tunnels below the old city of Jerusalem, and you see this city that David's men came up and climbed through to capture the city, and you just have a little picture and it looks like a hole in the ground right or you see Elah Valley and where David killed Goliath and here's the stream and it uh, just looks like hills with trees and a wheat field in between them you know it doesn't do it justice or you're in Capernaum and you see the shores where Jesus is calling his disciples to him you see the the, the foundation of the synagogue where he worshiped and Peter's house and well, it just looks like a pile of rocks and some water and a shore, and it doesn't quite do it justice. And sure, the pictures are real and they're not misleading, but however, they're pointing to something much, much greater. Something more glorious than these pictures could ever capture. And it's the same thing for marriage as well. It, yes, it's, it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's delightful, but it points to something far greater than the marriage that we share. So as we engage our text this morning, and we see this group of men, this Pharisees coming down, and they're asking, and they're deliberating about marriage and divorce. And they begin asking these questions, and you see that they don't even understand the magnitude of the questions that they are asking about divorce. Why? Because they don't even understand Marriage. And these are um, painful waters to swim through, I'm, I'm well aware. And many within this body, within this flock, have walked through the painful valley of 
divorce or you grow up in a home that's unstable and you go from mom's house to dad's house and dad's house back to mom's house and it's quite unsettling. And as we talk about this, our goal is certainly not to heap shame upon those who have gone through this or those who have been raised up in those homes. No, 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 no. That is not our that is not our aim, but rather we are going to engage the text that God has for us and wrestle through this text so that we might see the glory of God in all things. So as we're, as we're moving forward, my friends, I want you to know and I want you to see and I want you to be challenged, even if you're not married, keep this in your mind. That we are to display the work of Christ. We are to, to display the work of Christ in our marriages. We are to display the work of Christ in your marriage. So first off, verses 1 through 6, we're going to be looking at marriage within the garden. How does it originally designed? And then following that, verses 7 through 12, we're going to be looking at marriage outside of the garden, which is quite a bit different than marriage within the garden. So main idea, in your marriage, display the work of Christ. And we see marriage within the garden, and then marriage outside of the garden as well. And for some time we've been detained out of Matthew, haven't we? We've gone through Advent and gone through a short series on eldership and we've been jumping back in here and we see this gospel unfolding. Matthew is unfolding and we see this, this tale of the king and his kingdom going forth. The king who is coming to rescue his bride and to steal her from the clutches of the evil one and secure her in his own arms. The king is, has come to rescue his bride, the church, and to establish a kingdom, and to establish a place where this church, his bride, is able to, able to thrive and able to flourish. Now, husbands, that's your role, is it not? And this unorthodox kingdom, this, this upside-down kingdom, is, is a most delightful place, actually. It's, it's the city of God within, this, within the city of man. It's a place where those who are poor in spirit, what are they? They're actually, they're actually blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who are mourned, are not just those who are mourned, but those who are mourned are actually blessed. For they shall be comforted by God and comforted by God Himself. And those who are peacemakers are blessed. We have peacemakers among us. Those who are peacemakers are blessed, for they shall be called sons of God. And this is the kingdom that Christ has been unfolding throughout this Gospel of Matthew. And in this previous chapter, as Kevin and Adam were preaching, we see the disciples begin to jockeying for position as they're seeing, okay, kingdom, 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 there must be a kingdom going on. And they begin to jockey for position, wondering who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom. And Christ is reminded them for the second time in chapter 18 that the Son of Man is going to come, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And he'll be raised on the third day. Now, if such is the fate for the king of this kingdom, we are not surprised that those who humble themselves as children, 
Those are the ones who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we have laid before us this path of humility to bring about restoration, to bring about reconciliation in the midst of brokenness within the body of Christ. Even looking forward, we we talk about the the faith of children. And this, this, this marriage is bookended on childlike faith before and after. And so we see, what do we do within the realm of the body of Christ? But now we're going to be looking, well, what about the body of Adam? What about marriage itself? So let's take a look at marriage within the garden. Let's reread verses verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds, large crowds followed him and he healed them. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that's not a compliment, by the way. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He then said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here is Christ. He's the masses. The common people are following him, and he's leaving the Sea of Galilee, and he's heading south, and he's crossed over to to the east side of the Jordan. And he's coming to Jerusalem now for his last time. And it's, it's during this time you see he has the healing of ten lepers that you would see in Luke 17 as well. And and the time there should have been much rejoicing, should there not? Healing of ten lepers, the common people are following him. And leave it up to whom? The religious elites, the pastors of the day, to come along and ruin it. They appoint themselves... You see this? They appoint themselves over Christ as the judge, and they come to test him with this question. And they ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, what do you think motivates such a question? Why would they even ask it? Do they really want to know? Are they... They're not humbling themselves in coming to him as a rabbi and seeking to be taught by him, are they? Well, no. You begin talking about divorce. They're in the region, the political region of Herod Antipas. Remember the last gentleman who spoke out against divorce and infidelity in the region of Herod Antipas. So it didn't turn out very good for John the Baptist, did it? Well, yeah. So you, you want to eliminate Christ, you start asking, well, tell us about divorce. Tell us about divorce. Tell us about divorce. They're undoubtedly they're seeking to entrap him, and at that time there's it's, it's like today there's there's a host of opinions out there, but there's largely two camps that most everybody would fit into. You have the conservative view, and then you have the liberal view. You have the conservative view, Shammai, the the Jewish rabbi, the teacher. He would say that it was just because marital infidelity. That's the only reason you can have divorce can't get divorced without marital infidelity. And then on this side, in the liberal camp, you have Hillel. And he would say, any reason's good enough. Just go ahead and find one. Right? So you have the conservative view and then the liberal view. And they were all debating about this Deuteronomy 24 
verses 1. So when it says that a husband, quote, finds a matter of shame, or if you read it in the original, finds a matter of nakedness with his wife, well then, then he can separate from her and he can have, he can go and get a divorce. And they're posing these questions to Christ, aren't they not? But what are they not wrestling with? The question was never asked, should I be divorced? No, the question was always being asked, how can I justify my actions? Is what they're seeking to do. How can I justify my actions? And both of these camps, conservative and liberal, well, they make it then a duty and an obligation to go ahead and get a a divorce. Because there's a violation of the law, is there not? Well, then you have the duty and the obligation to get a divorce. But then Christ comes along, and what does he do? What's neither the conservative, it's neither the liberal understanding of divorce. What does he do? He takes them back to the garden and shows them the original design that God would have for them. So in answering the questions about divorce, he must lay a firm foundation of what marriage is. Well, let's understand marriage. And then we can talk about divorce. We can't just start talking about divorce without laying firm foundation of what marriage is. So he lays this, this foundation and he, he, he tells them at the beginning the Creator made them, in verse 4, made them male and female. There was not one man and multiple women. There was not one woman and multiple men. No, no, no. There was one male and one female and God brought them together. So here is Adam, and he's, he's working in the garden. He's naming the animals. He's, he's tending the garden. And every other thing that is created, there's a male and female couple. Male and female elephants. Male and female kangaroos. Male and female parakeets. God brings them forth. But here is Adam. He's alone, and he was, he was brought out of the earth and filled with the breath of God, made in the image of God. And then comes Eve, the culmination, the culmination of all of the creation. Eve comes forth and was created in a most unique way, unlike anything else. Eve was created. She was not brought out of the dirt of the ground like Adam was. No, 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 she was brought out of the side of Adam. And in this act of worship, she is brought out of the side. And so you have one flesh becoming two, do you not? Well, out of Adam, you have one flesh becoming two. And so it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And this is the beauty of marriage within the garden, my friends. That in Adam you have one flesh becoming two. Well, how can the two become one? Ah, through marriage. God joining them together. Who separated them? God separated them out. God will bring them together. So you have one flesh becoming two, Adam and Eve. And then in marriage you have the two flesh becoming one. And the implications of this are, are astounding. So what, what does you do? For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So this takes a precedence over any other relationship you have. Your loyalty to your spouse takes precedence even over your parents, with whom you're emotionally tied. They gave you life itself, did they not? 
that your greatest loyalty lies elsewhere. It lies with your spouse. So there's not just a a decoupling, a leaving of the former things to become one flesh, but there's this uniting together as well. And this is the positive regard. You'll be united with your wife. You'll be united with your husband. Thus we have the most profound union in all of creation. That is marriage. That is marriage. Piece of paper, they say. Ah, oh, it's nothing, they say. Oh, we we love each other. We don't need to get married. It means nothing, they say. No. They don't understand that it is the act of God. It is the grace of God. It is the work of God. Uniting and bringing together two people. That is the beauty of marriage within the garden. So, in answering the question about divorce, it is neither the conservative nor the liberal position. These these seemingly two dichotomies that we think we must choose between, don't we? But it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God that must not be defamed. In the first marriage, that is our standard. The first marriage is our standard, and any deviation from that is sin. It is wrong. For we are, we are not the ones who joined ourselves together. No, no, no. Who joined us together? Therefore, what God has joined together. God has joined us together. And thus, we must not tear it asunder. I, I hope you're beginning to see the picture of marriage that we have within the garden that is held before us by Christ. Is, and there is, it's one male created by God and a woman taken out of his side and you have the one becoming two and then the two gloriously becoming one by the hand of God. And you live in this bond as you're married that God has created and we cannot tear it asunder. We cannot break it until God breaks it and calls us home. So what then do we do? Right? We must never be like those in the text who presume upon divorce. You see it in the Pharisees, right? They, they come to an app and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Can we do it for any reason or does it have to be something really, really big to justify, to do what I want to do? And in this mindset, what do you have? You have a self-fulfilling prophecy, don't you? You lie in wait, and you wait for your partner to stumble. And the list of offenses comes rolling off your tongue. And you wait for them to stumble a little bit, so you can justify the evil inclinations within your own heart. And we sit, and we wait, in judgment, to tear apart, what God has brought together. Do not lie in wait. Do not have that heart. Do not, do not presume upon divorce. But rather, resolve in your heart that you will live out the reality of whom you are. That your life is not your own, my friends. That husbands, your life is not your own. Wives, your life, your life is not your own. You are one flesh, sewn together in the eyes of God. 
So husbands, your identity is what? It's not your work. Wives, your identity is not your children. It's not your grandchildren. Oh, everybody, everybody else will ebb and flow in and out of your life. Even, even your children. But your husband, your wife, will be there forever. Have then this resolve to live out the reality that God has placed you in. And finally, before we move on, a, a thought for those who are are still in the garden, but yet don't have that mate that God has brought to them. God knows. He's the one that said it. God knows that it's not good for man to be alone. God knows that it's, it's not ideal for a woman to not have a man to come back alongside of again. Without this, we, we, it's easy to have an identity crisis and to wonder who we are. But we must never think that the solution is as easy as finding a husband or as finding a wife. No, it is not. Do not go down the path of fleshly idolatry. Do not go down the path of fleshly idolatry. But take this season to find out who you are in Christ. This longing, feel it in Christ because it's only going to be something else, right? You want to get married, and you long for it. And then you get married. And then, that's not enough, you want kids. And then you want more kids. And then you want the kids to leave. And then you would wish they were gone, so you have grandkids, and you take them back, and you sugar them up. You guys are not nice. You sugar them up and send them back home to the parents. It's evil of you guys, it's evil. You send them back to the parents, and then you go... No, we don't need, we need rest. We need a better retirement. That's what we need. We need to get away. There's always something, always something. Resolve it in your hearts that you will be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. I, I understand. I know what you're thinking. Here's another married guy with a bunch of kids telling me to be content with not being married. But there will always be this longing for something else. Resolve in your heart during this season of life that no matter what that longing is, you will seek after Christ to have it satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. So we, so we've seen in verses 1 through 6, God's design and, and His purpose and His picture for marriage that the one has become two in the marriage, the two have become one. But the reality is that we're not in the garden. We're outside of the garden. And our hearts and our minds are, are cloaked and covered in sinful flesh. So let's, let's go back to the text and we'll, we'll pick up the story here. We'll just read verses 7, 8, and 9. Why then... They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
Thus we have this, this reply of the Pharisees who are seeking to illegitimize Christ by putting Christ in opposition to Moses in the law, right? So you have Moses as a standard, and if you can show that Christ is somehow deviating from Moses, well then, then, then Jesus is he's, he's disregarded, is he not? Little do they know that Christ created Moses and, and gave him the words to write down. So Christ, they say, if we cannot tear asunder what God has put together, why did Moses allow us to do it? Why? And he replies, basically, that you, you boast in having it. You should first understand why it's there, this provision for divorce. You only have it because your heart is hard. Don't boast in that. He says in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. If they had the purity that they claimed, they would not need this provision, would they? But again, here we are, outside of the garden. And they have these provisions given to them to divorce, but they also, they also have the law that's saying, well, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Well, they don't seek these as, as provisions to sin, do they? No, no, no. It's because our hearts are hard. We are the same. So we live under the same words of Christ. To be united, to remain united with our husband and with our wife. But again, we are outside of the garden. So these provisions are granted and, and they are narrow. They are very narrow. Culture would have us take anything. But they are very, very narrow. And these provisions are given. So within marriage, you, you have a covenant within marriage that you, sitting here, listen, that you must not break. You must not break this covenant of marriage. But if the other party breaks the covenant, remember, two flesh becoming one, if they break the covenant and take their flesh and join it to another, well then, well then you are free. And you, you see throughout the Old Testament, God's care for women and care for widows. Well, then a man leaves with another. Well, you don't want her to be destitute, so you give her a provision of divorce so she can marry another, so she doesn't have to turn to prostitution. So it, it's God's allowance and grace to care for women. That he grants this. If a man's going to run off and do his thing, let the woman carry on. She did not break the divorce. Allow her to be taken care of. Allow her to be loved. Do not let the sins of her husband be held against her. Again, it's, it's permissible. It's, it's not ideal by any means, but it is permissible. But some of you have gone through this. Even though there's been unfaithfulness, you have sought to stay. Maybe it didn't turn out, but you have sought to stay. That is the picture of God pursuing His unfaithful people, us. You're wanting to stay, even though there's been infidelity, and you're willing to take that burden and carry it upon you. There is no shame in that. You are imaging 
God's work in pursuing His people who walked in rebellion against Him. But let us be clear. God does hate divorce. He hates it. You see Malachi 2. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrongs, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed in your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So God hates divorce, so we too must hate divorce. Do we not? Ask people that have gone through it. You want to know someone who hates divorce? People who have gone through it hate divorce. Their children hate divorce. Their grandchildren, when they start asking why there's three grandpas and four grandmas, and you have to explain to them what happened, and their eyes fill with tears, and they become start asking, well, are you and mommy going to stay together? Even grandchildren hate divorce. And as Paul Regarding marriage as a mystery, he makes it very clear why God hates divorce. For marriage, as we've talked about, marriage, the Christian marriage, is not just, it's not just about you, but it's pointing to something far greater, and that is Christ and His church, is it not? But Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5. He says, Husbands, Chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the Word, that so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Go down a couple verses to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Over and over and over again, we are seeing throughout Scripture that our lives are not about us. This church is not about us. It's about Christ. Our lives are not about us. It's about Christ. Even with our marriages, we see that our marriages are not about us, but rather they're pointing to something far greater. And that thing far greater is who? Christ, is it not? So, with the husband and the wife, we have a physical picture of Christ and His church. This is the reason that God hates divorce. There are not multiple churches. There are not multiple wives. There are not multiple saviors. There is one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are not multiple men. No, no, no. There is one. So when we... You listen to this. So when we commit adultery, it's not just immorality. It's blasphemy. And God will not tolerate it. You're saying there are multiple Lord and Saviors. Multiple ways. That's what you're declaring through your immorality. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Pray that He would keep you from that. So as the husband has his wife and his bride and he sanctifies her by the washing of the water of the Word, so too will Christ take the church and present it, present her to Himself without spot or blemish or any such thing. 
This is the glorious work of Christ. And he has pursued his bride and he has won her and he has bought her through his death and his burial and his resurrection. And I hope you believe it. We, we long for marriage. I hope this is the one that you're longing for. When you long to be married, long for this. Fleshly husband, he'll let you down. Long for this, and you'll be satisfied. Truly satisfied. You can marry a bumbling idiot like me, and you're still relatively happy. Have Christ and long for Him and Him alone. We see that marriage is still, our picture of marriage is still yet incomplete until we look to the final day when John, in Revelation, sees a new holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as what? Prepared as a bride. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and every death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I I trust that you're seeing a marriage is not earthly, and it's not temporal, but rather it is divine and it is eternal. And sure, we, we have marriages now that will end, that will end in death, but they are all pointing to something far greater, to something more glorious. They are all pointing to the work and the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal work of Christ coming down and purchasing His bride and adorning her. Husbands, and this is your standard. Christ coming down and purchasing His bride, pursuing her, adorning her forever, and revealing to her the glory of God. Christ will never divorce His church. He will never leave her, but He will hold her close. Throughout eternity, reveal to her the glory of God, and thus it must be within our own homes as well. Can I get a divorce, they say. Can I get a divorce for any and every reason? Well, they don't even understand. I hope you see that they don't even understand the question that they're asking. But what about you? Are you any different? You ask yourself, can I continue on in this, this bitterness that I have against my husband? Can I, can I continue on flirting with this lady at work? It seems exciting. The answer is no. Flee. Flee from this temptation and cling to your husband. Flee from this temptation and cling to your wife. Have the resolve in your heart by the grace of God that you will not defame the work of Christ. That you will not defame His bride or His church, but rather that you will display the glorious work of Christ within your marriage. Let us pray. Father, we, we, we stand in awe, in absolute awe of you sending your Son to redeem us. Though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, you have 
sought after us. You have won us. You have purchased us. And you will never leave us nor forsake us, God. And I pray that as we seek to have stronger marriages, as we seek to be married, as we seek to be married again, God, wherever we are, I pray that our eyes would be fixed upon your Son and upon His work and that that would be our standard, God. That we would not go chasing after men to to be satisfied, but God, that we would be satisfied in you and in you alone, God. Could you do that work in our hearts this very moment and throughout this week? Amen.